Amen. Good morning. Can y'all let the worship team know how much we appreciate them this morning? They always do an amazing job. Take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 12 this morning. We're going to continue through our study in the book of Acts, and uh, we're going to find another incredible story right here that's going to continue to show us something that we're learning all the way through the book of Acts, and it's this on one hand, that there's an enemy to the cross, that we face an enemy in this world, that there's a prince of the power of the air, that there's a devil who prowls around looking for someone to devour, as God's word tells us. Uh, seeking to stop the advancement of the gospel. So on hand, we don't need to be surprised by that. The enemy never stops attacking. But this story also reminds us of this truth, that Jesus never stops winning. So we have an enemy that never stops attacking, but we have a king who never stops winning and a gospel that never stops advancing. So as a disciple, we never stop fighting. As a disciple, we never stop believing. We never stop surrendering to the Lord and repenting of our sin and consuming God's word and depending on God's spirit. And we never, ever, ever, ever stop praying. And this particular, this story in particular uh, reminds us of that truth, that when we meet the enemy's resistance in our life, when we meet opposition in our life, that we never should underestimate the power of the weapon of prayer that is at our disposal. All right, so that means that it's not enough just to be a believer that prays or a Christian that prays. You need to be a praying Christian. Those two things are different. That's not enough to be just a church that prays, that opens with prayer and has a prayer in between and a prayer at the end. We need to learn to be a praying church. A praying believer in a praying church is no small thing. It may seem small. It may seem insignificant. But this story here reminds us of something. What we're going to learn this morning is that great and significant events are often activated by what appears to be small and insignificant activities. That's just true in real life. I read recently, 1975, Steve Wozniak, typical 70s California kid, dropped out of college and had a hobby of kind of tinkering with computer design and joined a little small tech hobby group called the Home Group Computer Club there in the area where he lived in California. They met to do exciting things like exchange uh, computer parts and computer circuits. Sounds exhilarating, right? Uh, but uh, Steve was intrigued by microcomputers, uh, but the, uh, the, the type of chip that would make that work was just too expensive for him to get his hands on one. So he just kind of dreamed and would sit around in pieces of paper and kind of write out things that he thought would make sense. And then finally, in 1976, a, uh, a, a company manufactured a computer chip that was more affordable, $20. So he got $20 together. He went and bought it. Uh, he could afford it. And he began to build uh, a, a computer a program or a platform for his computer to run on and kind of did this, made this homemade version of a personal computer made out of wood, took it to his little group, his little computer group. They all geeked out over it. And one guy particular, one of his old friends, it caught his attention. His name was Steve Jobs. They joined forces and the rest is history. All right. So out of Steve Wozniak's parents' garage, they would build the Apple One and create a billion dollar company that would uh, eventually, uh, you know, create and give us the, the best selling, the most popular little mini supercomputer that many of you are holding in your hands right now that I know you're looking at your Bible app on and nothing else, right? There are plenty of examples that we could come up with to illustrate that, that something seems insignificant, something seems small when it's really activating something greater and something more significant. And we see an incredible example of that in Acts chapter 12, when a group of disciples or a group of Christians in the early church gather together for a midnight prayer meeting that seems like a small thing, but it was no small thing. 
Stand with your Bibles open. I'll begin to read in verse 1, Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest, here it is, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands and the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He didn't know uh, that what was being done to him by the angel was real, but thought it may have been a vision or a dream. When they had passed through the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm not sure, now, or now I'm sure that the Lord has sent an angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. What were they expecting for him to die? Verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were doing what? We're praying. Would you have a seat as I pray? God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for an opportunity to be in your word this morning. And God, we thank you for the privilege it is to even come to you right now in this moment and to join hearts and to pray to you and you hear our prayers. What an amazing truth. Lord, I pray in a fresh way that our our minds would be blown by that truth, by the privilege we have to enter in and to commune with you. Thank you for being a God who is intimately involved in our lives. Thank you for a God who allows, being a God who allows us to come along. You could use any other way to get your will done on this planet, and yet you choose to use sinners saved by grace. What an amazing truth. So Lord, I pray that our hearts would just stir, affections of our hearts would stir more for you as a result of being in this chapter this morning together. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first truth that I want us to see in this text, and I kind of laid it out as I see this is the big point in this text. And here's the first part of it, that we have an enemy as disciples. We have an enemy that will not stop attacking and opposing the movement of the gospel. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have an enemy. It's an enemy that will not stop attacking disciples who are on the move and seek to advance the gospel. So the kind of the tagline below that is, so don't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised when things get rough. Now, I want to say this, that there may be some trials, there may be some problems, there may be some things in your life that are going wrong this morning, and it may be self-inflicted. Those things can happen. It may be because you don't have your life surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. It may mean you need to repent of your sin. You need to seek to, to surrender your life to the Lord and allow his word to direct and guide your life. So maybe that's the reason why you have some struggles in your life and you certainly need to repent of those sins and experience the freedom that comes with surrendering your life to the Lord, right? But that's kind of another sermon for another day. This text reminds us of this, that even as a disciple who's seeking to live a holy life, who's seeking to have a heart that is humbly confessing sin regularly, who's repenting of sin, who's seeking to be sensitive to the Spirit's guiding, seeking to follow Jesus, if you're trying to sincerely Put your life at the disposal of Christ. If that's you this morning, hey, just set your clock. I guarantee you problems are coming. You're going to run into opposition. 
There are problems that, yes, the Holy Spirit can use to refine you, that the Holy Spirit can use to shape you and mold you more into the image of Christ as you walk through those trials, those fiery trials, faithfully with your eyes on Jesus. But listen, make no mistake, they are also problems, and it's also opposition that is there, set, traps set by an enemy that wants to distract you, derail you, plant doubts in you, discourage you. And he's been in that business from the very beginning. And as a church... Taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, as we saw last week, this early church. And by the way, didn't Brandon do a great job preaching last week on the conversion of Cornelius? <clears throat> blessed to have him uh, leading our students and just blessed to have a, a great Bible teacher like him to bring the word even uh, on Sunday mornings at times. And he did a great job of showing us how the gospel is, is getting out and making an international global impact. Right? And so if that's happening, the gospel's getting out. It's doing exactly what Jesus said it would do. It's getting to the ends of the earth. And what they perceived and understood as the ends of the earth at that time, it's making an international impact. So just set your clock because the, you know the enemy's going to be scheming to create and to put in front of the church an international type of opposition. A big type of challenge. And we see this from day one over and over again in the book of Acts that anywhere the gospel is advancing, the enemy is attacking. And you need to hear that today. You, you, need, to, you need to embrace and understand that reality that the same enemy at work in the lives of these disciples, even the apostles, even the apostle Peter right here in Acts chapter 12 is the same enemy at work today, which means any church including this one, it means that any life, including yours, including mine, of any family that seeks to grow in the gospel, to advance the gospel, and to center your life and home around the gospel, this is a guarantee the cannons of the enemy will pivot in your direction and you will feel opposition. You think the devil likes that you are committed to be at a church this morning and to sing songs about a God who can satisfy your soul where the things of this world cannot? You think the enemy likes that some of you are really seeking to try to have a home that's Jesus-centered? You think the enemy likes that you're seeking to raise your kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? You think that the enemy likes that some of you are beginning to take steps toward experience restoration in your marriage or even in your life? No, absolutely not. Therefore, don't be surprised when following Jesus gets difficult. These stories are here in Acts to illustrate for us and to remind us of the truth that Peter would go on later to write in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And this story in Acts chapter 12 is another story that reminds us of this truth. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. This is what happens when the gospel is on the move. Spiritual enemies rise up and they attack. And in this story, the enemy rises up in the form of a king called Herod. Now, Herod Agrippa right here. You're, you're probably seeing Herod right here and going, Herod. There's a lot of Herods, right? We got Herod in Matthew 2 who tried to solder all the babies. And you got Herod in John. But how old is this guy? Like, wait, Herod keeps showing up. Those Actually, the Herod in the Christmas story that we read about. Um, not a pleasant guy, the Herod who beheaded John the Baptist, and this Herod, three different guys. Three different guys, all part of the Herodian dynasty. So this is actually Herod uh, Agrippa I, and he's the grandson of Herod the Great, the one in Matthew chapter 2 who tries to kill all the babies after the wise men visit him. And then one of his sons, uh, the uncle of this Herod right here, is the one who beheaded John the Baptist. 
All right, so, uh, but all of them have something in common. In fact, there's like eight Herods that we see in the Bible, and all of them have something in common. They're all punks, all right? They're all little, evil, maniacal, violent punks. And I would say that to his face if he was right here, but I have to look down a little bit because they're very little. They were very little punk kings, all right? And they tried to inflict, and all of them loved to do this. They loved to inflict violence on the church and did their best to stop the advancement of the gospel. And this Herod in particular loved the praise of people. He loved the praise of people, which he, he had some, some uh, rough time sleeping at night because he was trying, he actually was over an area that he was governing the Jews, obviously. And Jews were not an easy people to please. They were not an easy people to govern. We found out what the other Herods found out that when you start to inflict some harm on the way of Christianity, it starts getting some, some applause from the Jewish audience. And then what he did is he killed James. And all of a sudden, the approval ratings, the polls came in the next morning, and then the Jews, the approval ratings went through the roof. And he went, whoa, maybe I'm on to something. Let me go up the ranks here. And if they got that excited about me killing James, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, let's see what they do when I kill the VP of the church, the apostle Peter. So he puts together a plan, and he is giddy with excitement as he has this plan to have this big show trial and to bring the apostle Peter out and to pretend like he has him on trial with the intention of killing him to appease the Jews. Does this sound familiar, by the way? Walking the path in the footsteps of his Lord. Well, Herod's plans are stalled a little bit because uh, he's trying to do all this in the middle of the Passover, specifically the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And he's a, a little bit afraid that uh, the, the Jews will get angry at him because it is against Jewish law to have trials during this time. So he, he stalls and he hits pause, which shows you how desperate they were to kill Christ because they killed Christ in the middle of the Passover. And they were desperate to, 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 to crush his influence and to eliminate him from the pages of history. And they didn't know they were working right into the sovereign plans, redemptive plans of God. For he had to be crucified over the Passover for him to fulfill the prophecy of being the Passover lamb. Well, anyway, he does hit pause because he wants to try to appease these Jews. And he makes sure that his prized prisoner is surrounded and guarded and nobody gets to him. Evidently, he had heard some rumors about how Peter was able to get out of jail a couple times. And so he puts all of these soldiers, uh, 16 soldiers in all that were guarding him throughout the night, four squads of soldiers. And there was two chained to him at any given time behind three gates. All of these details are to show us this. This is history. We have a historical faith, not just a biblical faith. But it's also here to remind us of this from a human perspective. Peter is a dead man. There's no way he's escaping this from a human perspective. And this is a challenging moment in the life of the church. This is a challenging moment in the life of an individual disciple named Peter. But it shouldn't be a surprising moment. I mean, Jesus told his disciples in John 16, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Listen to that again. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That second part is good news, right? That's some great news right there. Like on the cross, the, Satan's head was crushed. Then up from the grave, Jesus arose and we have a victorious king and nothing compares to the eternal life that we experience in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Nothing compares to that. There's nothing sweeter than that. There's nothing that compares to walking with Jesus and knowing that your sins are forgiven and to experience the rest for your soul that you experience as a Christian. The Christian life is rest for the soul. Listen, but the rest of that verse is true. Make no mistake. It is war. 
It is a battle. The end of his life, the apostle Paul did not say, uh, you know, I have braved my vacation. I have endured my long walk in the park. What does he say? I have fought the good fight. Paul knew he was in a battle. Paul experienced the battle. Paul faithfully fought within that battle with the spiritual weapons that were at his disposal in Christ Jesus. But he knew there was a devouring creature whose sights were set on the movement of the gospel and the lives of families who were seeking to advance the gospel and center their lives on Jesus Christ. So there's a reality there. We have an enemy that will not stop attacking as we seek to advance the gospel. And the question is, is what do we do? All right, it's there. It's true. There's a reality to embrace. We don't need to be surprised by it. But what do we do when things aren't right? When we face challenges, when we need a miracle to happen, when we're experiencing the attack of the evil, and what do we do? We look at what the church in Acts does and we learn from them. Just like them, while we recognize that there's an enemy that will not stop attacking, we don't let that surprise us. We also keep our hearts rooted in the truth that our king will not stop winning. Our king will not stop winning, which means we will not stop fighting. We will not stop believing. We will not stop trusting him and looking to him. We will not stop going to war against the enemy through the consumption of his word and through fighting in battle on our knees in earnest prayer. That is what we do. They're under attack, and what do they do? They pray. I mean, it's good that I wasn't in that first little meeting, or I wasn't in that meeting that night. Because my flesh may have, I may have been that boneheaded guy, like my flesh got involved and I gave some bad ideas based on some of the things that had happened recently, right? So Peter's in jail. They all gather together in the house of Mary to figure out what to do. If I'm in that meeting, I'm like, hey, listen, I'm, I'm okay with praying. Praying's good. Let's open the meeting with prayer. Hey, but maybe we need to plan some things out, all right? I mean, I don't know if you guys seen a prison break that show. Maybe you haven't seen it. Here's a scene. Let's try that. Let's try to get our boy, Peter. He's in there. He's chained. He needs some help. You look like you can shovel pretty good. Go, go grab some shovels. You look like you could go find some weapons for us that we could use. You look like you could, take, you could take a couple of those guards, right? You look like you could get, maybe get a little getaway chariot together. Let's get a plan together. Let's map this thing out. Let's go break our boy out of jail. Or I would come up with a second option. Maybe let's just run for the hills. Right? There's a big show trial tomorrow, right? This probably isn't going to be good. This may get out of hand. They may turn their attention to us and try to kill all of us. So maybe we should just get out of here. I just don't know if we need to spend all of our time praying because that's what we did for James. And look what happened to him. But that was not their mindset. They were convinced that when this world, when the enemy of this world turned against them pivoted his cannons and weapons in their direction that the right place for them to turn the best place for them to turn the only place for them to turn was always in the direction of their heavenly father in prayer it didn't matter that the main prayer request of their last prayer meeting didn't get answered the way they wanted to get answered i.e james getting rescued being set free It didn't get answered that way. And yet here they are, disciples showing us an incredible example of followers of Jesus that even when things don't go right, they say, God, we're giving this to you. Isaiah says that that your thoughts are not, or you said in Isaiah that your thoughts are not my thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. And so they run once again back to the heavenly father that they trust. They trust him. They've already seen him take what seemed like tragedy. And use it for something good. They saw, they've already seen how Stephen, when he was stoned, certainly there was some of them there praying for him. 
God, rescue him. God, do something. We've seen you do it before. And yet they see their brother in Christ stoned and killed. They didn't know what God was doing, but God could see something they couldn't see. And they saw the sovereign hand of God take the tragic death of Stephen and use that situation and the conversion of Saul. And the result of Saul's conversion has been millions and millions and millions of people who have experienced eternal life by the power of the gospel. So they trust God. Hey, God did something Incredible with Stephen's death, and we didn't understand it. He'll do the same with James. So we're going to run back to him because we trust him. But here's an even more radical realization is we we understand that they're running back to God because they still believe he'll answer their prayers. They still believe that he answers prayers. They still believe that prayers affect the outcome of situations, that their prayers can still change things. You go, wait a second. You talked a lot about the sovereignty of God and how God is, is, is like working things out and that he's in fully con- in control of things past, present, and future. Well, I do. Well, then why do we pray? Listen, we teach this here. We believe this here that God is sovereign. God is fully in control. I fully trust that he has orchestrated every step that you and I will take even before we take it from the moment we're born to the time we die. But I also fully trust that when God's word says in Job chapter 22, that when we pray, he hears our prayer. And that Jesus says in Luke chapter 20, chapter 11, ask and it will be given to you and seek and you will find it knocking. It will be open to you. I also fully trust that as well. Prayer is the very instrument that we pick up that God uses to respond to us and to act. You say, well, how does that work? That kind of makes my, my brain hurt a little bit. I mean, with all that being sovereign and everything, how does all that work together? You're I'm going to give you an answer to it. So take some notes. I'm serious. Write this down. I'm going to push my glasses up so I look a little more smart. All right. I'm going to take posture like so I look a little more intellectual, a little more theologically together. You ready? I'm going to give you a brain bursting explanation for that dilemma in all of our hearts and minds. You ready? How does all that work together? Here it is. You ready? Write it down. Three words. I don't know. I don't know. All I know is this, that it's clear that God is fully in control. God is fully in charge. Nothing happens outside of his perfect will. And yet at the same time, the same Bible teaches us this, that there's certain things that won't happen unless God's people pray. And the early church believed that and they lived that. I mean, we can learn a lot about prayer from the early church. We need to learn a lot about prayer from the early church. And as I kind of just step to the side a little bit and I think about prayer and I think about their commitment to it, you got to ask the question, why, why were they so committed to it? Why didn't they neglect it? Like so, Because already, who in here feels, I feel convicted, right? And I'm the one preaching about the lack of prayer in my, in my life as a believer. Why, why don't we see, especially in the early days, that, that same neglect? I believe, for one, I believe they never got over the privilege it was to live in relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ and to be able to commune with him through prayer. I believe that privilege just blew their minds every single day. This is not just some reactionary like meeting, like emergency meeting. Like we never pray. Let's get together and let's pray because this is crazy. And the apostle Peter needs a miracle. This is just another day. They, they prayed together all the time. They prayed together every single day. They prayed as individuals. And I believe a reason we fail to pray is because we just get lackadaisical, lackadaisical, 
what's the word? Lackadaisical. There you go. And flippant about the relationship that we get to have with God through Jesus Christ. We don't stop and allow our minds to be blown about how incredible it is that God hears our words at all. In fact, if you go back to Luke chapter 11, verse 1, Jesus actually teaches the apostles about prayer. The apostles are the ones who disciple those early church folks about what it means to pray. And it really is good, actually, to read Luke and Acts together. It's kind of like two volumes of the same story. Installment one and installment two. The Gospel of Luke, of course, showing Jesus working, God in flesh, doing his ministry on the earth, his, his death, burial, and resurrection, and then his ascension, and then he sends the Spirit, and it's his work continuing on through Acts. But if you back up all the way to Luke chapter 11, you see where the disciples who could have asked him anything, they could have asked his help. I would have, again, boneheaded moment, I've been asking about miracles. Like, how did you walk on water? Can you just show us how to do that? That would be an amazing thing to be able to do. And yet what they have sensed after spending time with him is they understand that prayer seems to be the source of Jesus's miracle. Prayer seems to be the source of power for Jesus's teaching. And so they say, teach us to pray. And Jesus said this. This is the only part I'm going to talk about right here and we'll move on. He said, when you pray, say, Father. We could spend all day on that part right there. When you pray, say, Father. There we find a key word that shapes everything else that Jesus would ever teach them about prayer. That word, Father. That did not make sense to them. They felt They didn't feel like that was right to even begin to think about God as a father. They had understood God as as, as a God who was distant from them, even in the names that they had for him, which were beautiful names, true names, Elohim, the strong one, El Shaddai, the mighty one, Yahweh, I am that I am. But yet God, Jesus is bringing them in and, and helping them understand an even more beautiful name. The type of relationship that it communicates to you that you get to have with God. And it's the word father. What Jesus is doing is saying, hey, I've come to change something. I've come to turn the tables. I've come through my death and resurrection to put adoption on the table for sinners. Romans 8, 15 says this, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You know what that means when you receive the gospel? into your life, the spirit of adoption, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life and you be, it begins to allow you the privilege to cry out to God as a sinner saved by grace, as Abba. We receive the privilege forever of knowing God in a personal way and that changes the way you interact with him. Do you understand that? See, your understanding of your relationship with someone determines the way you're gonna, the way you're gonna interact with them. You're not going to interact with everybody today the same way. You're going to interact with people based on the type of relationship you have with them. So if I go to CVS after church today to grab a few things, I'm not going to interact with all of those people the same way I would with my family. You're not going to go up into CVS and be like, hey, bro, man, I've had like a, a long week at work, man. You might give me a little shoulder rub right there. I don't know you, but would you mind to do that for me? No, you wouldn't do that. That would be a problem. That would not be a good idea. You might hop in the car and ask your spouse to do something like that because it's a different kind of relationship. See, our relationship with someone shapes the way that you interact with them and how you talk with them. And what Jesus is driving home right here with this phrase, our father, is this is a new relationship that you have with God that dramatically changes the way that you relate to him. 
and grasping our relationship with him as father, it's, listen, it is a game changer in your prayer life. The gospel beckons us to leave the boardroom before you come to Christ. We view God like we're in a boardroom, like we got to impress him, like we got to bring our assignments, like we got to bring everything for him to check off and to grade us and to approve of our performance. But what the gospel does is beckons, beckons us out of the boardroom into the living room, to the table. As a son or a daughter of the king, when's the last time that truth has captivated your heart? Then in Christ, it's done. You've been adopted. We should, Christian, you should be regularly shocked that you're a Christian. You should be regularly shocked that you're adopted into the family of God. What the first few words of the Lord's prayer does is it teaches us to stop focusing on prayer. I know that sounds weird for a moment to stop focusing on prayer and focusing on God as your Abba father. Focus on the relationship and you watch the way as you begin to commune with him and interact with him as your heavenly father, how it changes the way you pray. You'll start seeing how it kind of weeds out some of the little goofy canned prayers that we have. Those little stiff prayers that we pray that we don't even stop and think about what they mean. A lot of them, we throw them up before we eat. Dear God, I pray you bless this food. What does that even mean? I say it all the time. And lately, I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, bro, you're about to eat a five-pound piece of carrot cake. You really think God can bless that? He can change water to wine, but I'm not sure he's interested in changing that to something nutritious. It's going down your esophagus. Maybe eat carrots. There's built-in blessings there. You won't even ask him to bless it. Like, no, focus on the relationship. Enter in, consider the privilege that it is to have that access and that title as son of God or daughter of God. And you watch how it begins to weed out some of those canned prayers. Stop worrying about so much of what you're praying. Pray the word, that's important. Know the word so you can pray the word, but focus more on who you're praying to. The early church was so focused on that relationship and they never got over the privilege it was to pray. Well, they also understood, listen to this, the required persistence it takes to experience answered prayer. The required persistence it takes to experience answered prayer. Because after, I don't know if you know that after Jesus gives that model prayer in Luke, he gives this little parable. It's a really weird little story, but it communicates a really profound truth. It's about a guy who goes next door to his neighbor in the middle of the night Whenever, when his neighbor and everybody in their home were sleeping, and by the way, in those ancient Middle Eastern days, they would have, the whole family would have slept in the same room in the same bed. Just think about that, kids and everybody, crazy, all right? And so they're all in bed, they're all asleep, the house is quiet, and here this neighbor comes next door, Jesus tells a story, and he starts knocking on the door and starts yelling that he needs like a bunch of bread. It's not like an emergency amount, like it's not like he's got an emergency and he needs like a, a meal or needs some food. This is like a week's worth supply of food. And the guy inside's like, bro, stop knocking. Like, leave me alone. Like, see me tomorrow. Like, what are you doing? And he won't stop. He said, dude, I need some, I got some, I got some people coming. I got some visitors in the night. I need some food. He's like, dude, go away. And they go back and forth and back and forth. He keeps knocking. And in Luke chapter 11, verse eight, listen to this. Jesus says it was because of his impudence, because he wouldn't stop knocking and asking that finally that grumpy neighbor gets up and gives him his pallet of Debbie cakes or whatever he was asking for. To the guy who won't stop knocking on the door. Now, is that meant to compare God to a grumpy neighbor? No. 
Jesus' reasoning here is this. If that's true, if even a grumpy neighbor will respond to you, if you keep knocking over and over and over again, if you keep insisting, if you keep persistently asking with earnestness for something, then won't your heavenly Father who never sleeps, who never has a do not disturb sign on the door of the throne room of heaven, who loves his children, won't he give you what you need? The earnest and persistent prayers of disciples get the attention of God. Disciples who, listen, disciples who believe that God fulfills his promises as disciples lay hold of those promises and pray them back to God. But don't just pray them once, pray them persistently. And I believe that is what's happened. A little bit of conjecture, but I believe that is what's happening in that room at Mary's home where the church is gathered. They're laying hold of the promises of God. And in order to do that, you better know the word of God. But they're laying hold of the promises of God. And they're laying that before God. And they're asking him to move. They're, they're saying, God, we know the movement's not over. God, you, Jesus, you said that on this rock you'll build my church. You said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord, we've seen you raise people from the dead. We've seen you heal lame people. We've seen you make blind people see. And we've seen you break chains once before. We we're asking you to do it again. Do it again. And they prayed it over and they prayed it over and they prayed it over again. Are you praying those kind of prayers with impudence? Are you laying hold of the promise of God when it comes to your home, when it comes to your marriage, over the lost people in your life who you love and asking God with impudence to move in power. Have you knocked and have you knocked and have you knocked? Because here's the bottom line. I think a lot of us give up way too easy. Give up way too early. There are times to give up. There are times to maybe give up's the wrong phrase. But there was a time in Paul's life where he prayed over and over and over again for his thorn and his flesh to be moved. And finally he said, God, that's your will and I'm moving on. So moving on is probably a better phrase. But is it not true that so many of us will pray for little short stints, for things where we see a gap where things should be a certain way, but it's not a certain way. And based on God's word, we know that gap should be filled. And we pray and we don't pray enough. We leave it alone and we move in, move on and throw in the towel. And this church wasn't willing to do that that night. So back to Acts 12, what's the result of this? And it ends very quickly here. Notice what happens here. And this is an amazing story. It's a powerful story, but it's actually really funny. You get a lot of like comedy moments right here. In response to their prayers, we see an angel that's dispatched to Peter's cell. And the, the, the angel appears, this glorious light evidently is bursting everywhere, bouncing off the walls. And what is Peter doing the night before his execution as this glorious being is filling up his cell with light? Sleeping. But Peter can sleep, we know that. But how do you sleep if you're Peter? How do you sleep knowing that, that you're going to be on trial the next day and you're going to be killed? How do you sleep through a trial like this? kind of reminds me of Mark chapter 4, someone else who was sleeping in the middle of a storm. When the storm looks like it's going to take that ship down and they think they're going to die and they go down and what is Jesus doing? He's sleeping and he gets up and he's like, what are you worried about? And it quiets down. And here we see Peter conforming to the image of Christ, not just like Christ in that he's experiencing opposition, but he's actually taking on the shape of Christ's character. And that he's resting his life in the hands of God. He isn't anxious. He, Peter's sleeping. 
I believe he's so sure the promises of God, so aware of the presence of God, so trusting the plan of God that he's able to hand it all off to God and go to sleep. Psalm 127 too, maybe he's thinking about that. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil for he gives his beloved sleep. He's saying, God, you're more in control than I am. I'm giving this to you. You don't sleep. You're the one who's gonna worry, worry about this. You're the one who's gonna work it all out. So here, I'm giving it to you. Here you go. And I'm going to sleep. And here this angel comes to his rescue. He sees him sleeping in peace, snoring away. And you almost get the uh, impression that the angel's irritated. He's like, really? I usually show up and like people are scared. And this guy's sleeping. He's deep in sleep. And he has to go over and say, hey, buddy, wake up. In fact, the word struck right there. It says he struck him to wake him up. That's actually the strongest word in the Greek for that idea of striking. So you know Luke had to be cracking up when Peter was retelling the story later. Because Luke's writing Peter's account of what happened. And Peter's a character too. He's like, dude, bro, I was in there sleeping, man. I gave it to God. And all of a sudden, a glorious beings kicking me in the ribs, telling me to wake up, leading me out of prison. And all these details are right here. And what are they here for? To shout this truth that this is a complete work of God. This has nothing to do with the ability of Peter. This has nothing to do with the strength of Peter. He, he thinks it's a dream. He's not even sure it's real. He's half asleep. The angel actually has to tell him to get dressed. It's like me telling my sleepy little six-year-old in the morning before school. You know what I mean? He's half asleep. Put your socks on. Put your shoes on. Put your pants on. Zip it up, right? We got to get dressed. Got to go to school. And then he tells him to put his cloak on. The angel's like, put your coat on, Peter. Young man, you're not leaving this cell unless you put that coat on. And so you just get this picture of kind of Peter kind of waddling out half asleep following this angel. And it's just a testament to the, to the power in the work of God, not of any human strength. This is simply a, a God who's gracious, graciously choosing to deliver Peter. And then look at verse 12. It says, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, where many gathered together and were praying. And that is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's not Mary Magdalene. That is, this is Mary, the mother of John Mark, who had some money and had a, a large house. And they would meet there and gather. And John Mark, somebody that we'll catch up with later in Acts. It says in verse 13, and when he knocked at the door, this is funny right here, of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And so she she knows they're praying for him. She's a servant. And she goes to the gate and she sees Peter and she's like, Peter! And she runs back inside and just leaves him out on the street. And she runs in and it says there in verse 15, it says, they said to her, or she said uh, in verse 14, he's standing at the gate and they said to her, you're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. So they kind of pick on her a little bit. You're crazy, Rhoda. Like, stop bothering us, Rhoda. Can't you see we're praying for Peter in here? Let's get back to it, fellas. Let's pray for Peter. And it says that she keeps insisting that it was so. She's like, I'm trying to tell you the answer to the prayer is standing at the gate right now. And then they kind of reason. They say, maybe it's an angel, right? I love that the Bible shows the humanness of these ordinary people who God uses in a mighty way right here. But it shows us that, yes, they had faith, but it was not perfect faith. 
Have you ever been there, right? Like we've all been there before, right? The, the, I love that the Bible shows us that we're human, the, the, the humanness of these people because have you not been in a situation where you're praying for God to move? You're praying that he'd move in power. You're praying that he'd perform a miracle that you know only he could do. And then he does it and you're like, shut up. Did that really just happen? Like, no way. And it surprises us and it shocks us. It shouldn't, but it does. And it's because we're human too. And while they're inside telling, you know, Rhoda to shut up, what's funny is, look at verse 16, it says, but Peter continued knocking. While they're going through all this, Peter's like outside going, guys, I am a fugitive on the run here. Uh, could you maybe, I'm out here in the open, on, in the street, right? He's like, I mean, the angel can get me out of jail. It can't get me into church. I don't know what's going on right here. <laughs> verse 17, but motioning to them, uh, Actually, let me back up. But Peter continued to knock, and when they opened, so finally they head to the door to figure out what the knocking's about. And it says they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord brought him out of prison. And he said to tell these things to James and to the brothers, and then they departed and went, he departed and went to another place. That little funny kind of moment there where they're, they're amazed and it implies that they're kind of piling out on the street. And they're like, oh, Peter. Peter's like, Shh, quiet, I'm a fugitive. And he tells him, he goes, let me tell you what happened. And he tells him what happened and how the angel woke him up and how that gate opened and how they passed through those guards. And just imagine what it was like to be in that group. He says, tell James, this is obviously not the James who got killed. This is the James who's the brother of Jesus who will go on to write the book of James. And that church, just imagine if you're there, that church walks back inside, blown away by the grace of God. Blown away by the goodness of God who delivers, by the power of God who saves, by the power of God that hears the prayers of his people in the realizing that this divine rescue of the apostle Peter, that such a great and significant moment in the life of the church was activated by a little midnight prayer meeting. It's an amazing story. Once again in Acts, you see this an amazing turn of events. This is not where you think this is headed at the beginning of chapter 12, right? At the beginning of chapter 12, it's like, it's like this big heavyweight champion of the world walking around with swagger. The enemy of the world prowling around looking for people to devour walks into one side of the ring. Looks like he's got all the strength, all the power, all the weapons of the world. And in the other corner walks in what? Earnest prayer. And you're like, it doesn't have a shot. There's no way it has a shot. And yet this story shows us that 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 weapon is no small thing. You know why that weapon is no small thing? This is key. Tie this together because God's no small thing. He's the undisputed champion of the world. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And prayer is our lifeline to him. He is the God who has the last word when it comes to the enemies of the cross in this world like Herod. Take some time to read the rest of Herod's story. It's down below where he's going to kill his guards because that was the punishment when you were guarding somebody and the prisoner got away. Whatever they were going to be charged with or whatever their sentence they were going to have, you, got to, you had to pay that. So all the guards who, let, who were there when he escaped, they, they die. And he goes on to another town and he's in the middle of an arena. And it records it right there at the end of this passage. 
And it says he has this, Josephus says he has this silver studded Ric Flair robe and he walks in and spins around and he's the man and they're praising him and they're applauding him and they're talking, they're singing his praises and talking about he's God. And all of a sudden an angel strikes him, not with a touch of grace, but with a touch of death. And this man who stood on the top of the mountain, the kingdoms of this world, you read what happens. He spends his final days dying as intestinal worms ate him from the inside out. That's what happens to King Herod. And in the very next verse, in verse 20, it says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Why? Of course, it's because God's sovereign and he has a plan. And that the gospel is going to advance no matter what. But this story is meant to take our eyes to verse 5 and our heart to verse 5 and to realize it's also because of the earnest prayer that was made by the church on the behalf of the apostle Peter. That same weapon is at our disposal. Let that sink in this morning. We have a better weapon. We fight a defeated foe. Let me just tell you this this morning. The world can take the government. The world can have entertainment industries and education systems and the state and the internet and the wow factor and the cool factor and Hollywood and all the might and all the power and all the thrones and all the riches and all the laws and all the weapons that they can muster. It will always pale in comparison to something that seems small from so many humans' perspectives and it's called earnest prayer. Prayer is mighty because it connects us with the mighty God who is in heaven, who will not stop winning who will not stop accomplishing his will on this earth, who will not stop delivering sinners from the bondage of their sin, who will not stop performing miracles, who will not stop rescuing, who will not stop advancing the gospel, who will not stop sanctifying his people, who will finish the work that he started inside of you, all of which he chooses to do through answering the prayers of his people. Did you know your salvation is the result of someone praying for your salvation? You may not even know who that was. You know what that means? You know what all this means? We cannot afford to be a church that prays. We must be a praying church. We cannot just be Christians who pray. We must be praying Christians. We can't afford to neglect it. We can't afford to underestimate the power of it. That's what the enemy wants us to do. Let me end with this quote. Samuel Chadwick said this. Listen to this. The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from prayer. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, our ability to retain theological difficulties and to be able to wax eloquent on even the redemptive history of the Bible. If there's prayerlessness in that soul and in that person, Satan's happy. He fears nothing from prayerless studies. He fears nothing from prayerless work. He fears nothing from prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. He trembles this morning when you pray over your family. He trembles this morning when you pray over your marriage. He trembles this morning when you pray over your children and your brothers and sisters in Christ and for miracles and for the advancement of the gospel of this local church. He trembles. And so I guess my charge and exhortation, let's make him tremble. 
By some of us this morning laying hold to the promises of God's word and holding those up to God over our family this morning, over our lost spouse this morning, over this community this morning, over the lostness in our city, over the division in our country, over the fatherlessness in our culture. Laying hold of the promises of God and praying with impudence that he would move in power When the weakest Christian takes that posture, it makes the prince of the power of the air tremble. And as we do that, what will happen? I believe we'll discover the blessings and the victories and the stories of deliverance that await us if earnest prayer is made. If earnest prayer is made. We have an enemy that won't stop attacking. We have a king who won't stop winning. Therefore, we'll never stop fighting, primarily through earnest prayer. Let's pray.